Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We are going to tackle a whopping 51 verses of text. And now some of you are wishing that you were not here. But we're going to tackle 51 verses, which is at least a personal record for me. And if that was not enough to pique your excitement this morning, you will be delighted to know that our subject matter is the very light and simple subject of the end times. The verses we are about to read are the verses which get cited in support of the rapture in in the popular book series, Left Behind. People pointed to these verses during the recent lunar eclipse as evidence that the world was going to end. They speak of uh, famines and wars and rumors of wars. They speak of the abomination which causes desolation, whatever that means. And the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. What we are about to read is not straightforward, it is not clear, and it is highly controversial. Welcome to church. We pick up in Matthew 24, verse 1. It says this, Jesus left the temple after clashing with the Pharisees and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Hey, Jesus, check out the temple. Isn't it awesome? And it was. The uh, temple in Jerusalem was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was one of the most beautiful structures on earth at that time. And just to give you a sense of the size, there were single stones within its foundation that weighed as much as 40 tons. So, so to point to a building such as this one would have been the equivalent of, of pointing to one of the great pyramids in Egypt. Verse 2, this is Jesus' response. Do you see all these things, he asked? Do, do you see this building? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Wait, what? As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the ends of the age? All right. We're going to pause here for a moment because there are a few things that we need to unpack. Uh, The temple was the center of their world. If the temple was going to be destroyed and Jesus himself were going to replace the temple and become the true king, then the disciples start wondering, okay, if that sort of landscape shifting stuff is going to happen, then perhaps they think this might also be 
the ends of the world. And hence, we get this two-part question from the disciples. Part one is, hey, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? When will Jerusalem fall? And second part, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? There's two questions here which are related in their minds. Will these two things be one in the same event or will they be two separate events? The disciples aren't really sure, but they want an answer to both. I don't know if this is one and the same, but Jesus, tell us when these things are going to happen. And so Jesus is going to answer both of these questions in the verses that follow. But he is going to answer both of these questions in the tradition of apocalyptic literature. And before we can read his words, I need to take the briefest of moments to explain what that is. Because for better or for worse, it doesn't really exist anymore. As you read the Bible, and I hope you do, you need to be constantly thinking about what type of literature you're reading. Because the Bible contains all these different types. Am I reading narrative? Hey, here's what happens. Am I reading discourse? Hey, here's how you should live. Here's the way things should be. Am I reading poetry and all that comes with it in the Psalms and elsewhere? And, and as we read those, um, we get that because we still have all of those genres of literature. We, we understand poetry and how to read poetry because we still have poets and we still have poetry. What we do not have in our time, place, and culture is apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is a highly symbolic form of literature that evaluates current and future events side by side as a means of encouraging God's people to persevere. And this genre, it has its own rules and, and structures and patterns and traditions, all of which are almost completely lost on us because we don't have this art form anymore. It was unique to this type of literature. Uh, imagine, if you would, uh, taking some of our modern day poetry and giving it to someone who lived on another planet uh, where they could only take things literally. They would be completely confused by the poetry that you gave. It wouldn't make any sense to them. It, it would be unintelligible but it makes perfect sense to us because we have that genre and we understand the rules and the creativity and, and how to operate in it. We know what poetry is supposed to do. Are, are you with me? One, one, two, okay. Rough start. Okay, but you and I, here's the point I want us to get. You and I are mostly illiterate when it comes to this genre that Jesus is about to speak in. 
And, and therefore, it can feel foreign or, or almost scary to kind of read and interpret. And in fact, our temptation would be to read this type of literature and pretend that it's something else. To pretend that it fits into to a different category of literature that we're more com- comfortable with. Uh, to, because it's confusing to us. A, a lot of it will, will make no sense. There, there's, there's symbols that were commonly used in apocalyptic literature uh, that, that were perfectly understood by them that make almost no sense to us. And if that's not enough to make things more confusing, in this genre, the writer will often talk about multiple future events at the same time and, and sort of blur the lines between them. And, and that doesn't make sense to us either. So whether it's Daniel or Ezekiel or John in the book of Revelation or Jesus in the passage that we're about to read, they have this unique way of talking about events in the near future and in the distant future in the same passage. Are, are you with me? That's weird to us but it was perfectly normal to them. If you're a visual learner, I I want you to to think about apocalyptic literature uh, like a painting. Imagine that the prophet is visually painting a picture like this one. Foothills in the foreground, majestic mountain in the backgrounds. And, and, and what they're doing as the prophet paints this picture is that the foreground is going to be a, an event in the near future. It could be the exile or, or the fall of Babylon. Or in this case, uh, this morning, it's the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But as they talk about these things in apocalyptic literature, they also are then referencing what's in the background, which is sort of this uh, majestic mountain, big picture, almost cosmic level stuff that God is doing. It it could be uh, the end of the age or uh, the resurrection that is to come or or the glorification of, of the righteous, the return of Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth. But all of these uh, apocalyptic writers are, are talking about something in the foreground and something in the background and, and almost blurring the lines between them. And, and, and you can think of it this way. When you look at this picture, it is difficult to tell the distance between the foothills in the foreground and, and the mountain in the background, right? And, and we could all give our guesses. Hey, I think there's about half a mile in between them. Oh, no, 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 no. I think there's at least 10 miles in between. Oh, there could be 20. And, and we could have those debates. From our angle, it, you, you can't grasp the depth and distance between the two events. And yet, as the prophet is painting this picture, sometimes you're going to have a hard time telling, is, wait, 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 what's this verse about? Is he talking about the mountain in the background or, or the event that's looming on the horizon in the foreground? Are you with me? Okay. So, so that is the difficulty with this genre of writing. Am I reading about the fall of Jerusalem or am I reading about the end of the age? 
Exactly. That's how you know you're reading apocalyptic literature. And, and that's what we're about to step into. We are about to cover 50 verses, and here is the breakdown of these verses. Verses 4 through 35, uh, Jesus is going to focus on the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Within this framework, they are the foothills, so to speak, this thing that is looming on the horizon. In fact, he says that these events will happen um, within this generation. He says this generation will live to see these events. And, and if you look biblically within the scriptures, a generation is generally about 40 years. That's kind of this nice round biblical number. So you think of the generation of the Israelites in the desert, right? They're condemned to wander for a generation or 40 years in the desert. And so Jesus is saying, hey, fall of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, the foothills, that's going to happen in many of your lifetimes in the next 40 years years. And for those of you who know your history, that is exactly what happens. 37 years after Jesus, a, a false messiah comes, stirs up the people toward violent revolution against Rome. They go to war, and in response, Rome comes and wipes Jerusalem off the map completely destroys Israel as a nation, disassembles it, and sends them out into the world. They cease to exist as a nation after that moment. It is cataclysmic within the story of God. And, and what they do is they come in, in this horrific, violent way to tear the nation to, to shreds, and, and they destroy the temple knocking the stones over. Not one stone is left on the other. Okay, that's all coming in verses 4 through 35, the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, that's the foothills. Then, in the next set of verses, in 36, 36 through 50, um, we get Jesus' return and the end of the age. Then Je Jesus is going to move seamlessly into answering the second part of their question in the same passage, in the same breath. And, and notice that the disciples don't know if these are going to be two different events or one and the same. And curiously, because Jesus is answering in, in this tradition of apocalyptic literature, he's not even going to make it clear whether these two things are one event or two separate ones. He does not give the clarity that we would desire. The ultimate answer he gives as to the timing of his return is, I don't know. I don't know. Only the Father knows. I don't know when I'm going to return to and the age. And so in the end, after Jesus is done talking, we're sort of left with this apocalyptic mountain picture and sort of left asking, hey, what do you think? How far do the foothills seem from the mountain? Are they 10 miles or are they 20 miles? Is this first talking about the foothills themselves or the mountain that is to come? Is this the end of Jerusalem or the end of the age? That's what happens when you read this genre. 
we pick up in Matthew 24, verse 4. Remember, they've just asked their two-part question. When will Jerusalem end and the temple fall? And when will be the end of the age? Jesus is going to answer both right here. Verse 4, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains, and they're all coming in the next 40 years. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Quick side note, the abomination that causes desolation is really fun to say. And it is a reference to an event that's going to take place as Rome comes in to conquer. They're going to go into the temple on the altar of the Lord. They're going to make uh, sacrifices to the pagan gods, which they believe have just given them victory over Yahweh and his people. So they're going to desecrate the temple by sacrificing to their gods uh, on Israel's altar before destroying the temple. That's what that's a reference to. Verse 17, when this happens, Jesus says, when you see all this going down, let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. In other words, if Rome had had its way, perhaps no one from Israel would have survived. And Jesus is going to continue in these verses that follow in classic apocalyptic form, not just to use symbolic language, but to quote Isaiah and Daniel and their apocalyptic literature as Isaiah describes the fall of Babylon. And the language he uses to describe this empire falling is that the sun and moon were darkened. You know that phrase we have, it's as if the sky is falling? It's that sort of sense that the whole world is coming crashing down. And and this is the poetic language that we can use to describe it. And so Jesus is going to quote that about the fall of Babylon as if to say Jerusalem has become the next Babylon. 
And it too is about to come crashing back down. And when it does, it will be so earth-shattering, it will feel as if the moon and stars have gone dark. Just like it felt in Babylon, so it will feel here. Then he goes on to quote Daniel, as Daniel speaks apocalyptically, poetically, about the glorification of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And so Jesus is going to quote both of them as if to say, another empire is about to fall, as in Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is about to be glorified on the clouds, as in my resurrection and ascension are coming. Skip down to verse 34. Verse 34. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. The fall of Jerusalem, the resurrection and ascension through the lens of apocalyptic literature. Are you with me? Bless you. Are are you tracking with me so far? Okay, it's not very straightforward, and it's not in a literary genre that we can comprehend, but, but there it is. Jesus has just answered the first part of their question. All of this stuff, the fall of Jerusalem, the, the destruction of the temple, the foothills, that will happen in the next 40 years, and it does. Now... Jesus is going to shift almost seamlessly into answering the second part of the question. He's going to start talking about the mountain looming in the background. And again, in classic apocalyptic style, you could easily miss the transition between the two. But this is the transition. Look at verse 36. He says, but, so all of that's going to happen in this generation, but about that day or hour you know, of my return, No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay? My ascension in the clouds, the destruction of Jerusalem, that's the next 40 years. The great mountain of my return, I don't know. I don't know. Only the Father knows which means that none of us know and all of us are going to be surprised. Therefore, Jesus is going to say, live a life of faithful service as if I could come back at any time because I can. Have integrity in your life day in and day out. Verse 37 As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming or returning of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Tons of debate around those two verses. But here's the point. This is what Jesus is after, verse 32, 42, 42. 
Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And he goes on to say, essentially, I will come like a thief on a day and an hour that you do not expect me. And if you've been living your life as if I wasn't going to return, you're going to regret it. Live in such a way that you would be ready for me to return tomorrow. And then he drops the mic and, and, and walks away. That's it. And, and, and we're left, what we're left with as he finishes it is an apocalyptic mountain portrait and a mountain of questions to go along with it. I, I think this passage raises more questions than it answered. Why did Jesus answer the disciples in this genre? I don't know. Why does he quote Isaiah and, and Daniel in the way that he does? Why blur the lines between the fall of Jerusalem and, and the end of the age? I don't know. Is it really conceivable that Jesus doesn't know when the world will end? Or, or is that he didn't know then and does, he knows now? Does he know now? Will we really be caught off guard by his arrival? Or, or will there be signs globally that alert us to the general timing? What does Jesus mean when he says that two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left? Is the Left Behind series even remotely biblical? And did Nicolas Cage bother to read the script before he showed up to film? These are all questions, uh, worthy questions, except the last one, that could occupy endless hours of our time. For endless hours, we could debate these things and, and try and parse out these verses and figure out exactly what Jesus is trying to say. But rather than wade into the endless debates, I'm going to suggest a different approach this morning. I want us to sit for a moment and ponder how Jesus would want us to respond to what he's just said. Or perhaps even how he might have expected the original disciples to respond the very first time he spoke these words. Because when I read through this passage, I see a lot of apocalyptic literature, and embedded within it, there are several key commands for followers of Jesus. And so what I want to do as we close, is to kind of sidestep the endless debates completely. And, and they're great, they're fun, you can have those in your living room. I, I'm not discouraging the debates. But what I want us to focus on as we close is the commands and a bit of encouragement. Okay, here are some thoughts in closing. First, Jesus says, stand firm in the faith. The world, he says, will always be crazy. It will always be turbulence. It will always be evil. The nightly news will always be disheartening. And 
the world will always be hostile toward Jesus and his kingdom and his followers, including you. Earthquakes and wars and persecutions and rumors of war, that, that's pretty much the human norm. That, that's where we live. It's been that way from the beginning. It will be that way until the end. Jesus promises that you will face hardship, that you will face opposition, even because of your faith. And many, he says, will, will allow their love to grow cold and allow their faith to die out and just sort of walk away from Jesus because of the opposition. And he says, hey, when you see all that stuff happening, hey, don't be surprised by the resistance. Don't be swayed. Don't give in to those forces. Stand firm in the faith. That's number one. Next, Jesus says, live a life of integrity. Live not just as if uh, Jesus were Lord, as important as that is, uh, but live as if he were near. Uh, live as if he cared deeply uh, about your daily life. Uh, live as if he was actually going to return and, and you were going to stand before him, and perhaps very soon. Go throughout your daily life thinking, hey, how would I feel if Jesus returned and kind of found me in the midst of whatever it is I'm doing? Where I'm at in, in life, what, what I choose to do with my time and my resources, how would that make me feel? Don't ask yourself what you can get away with in his absence. Ask yourself what you can accomplish in his presence. Be bold and radical with the things that Jesus has entrusted into your care. Share of your time and talent and resources. Live for the inbreaking kingdom of God. Jesus is saying in poetic language, hey, don't fall asleep at the wheel. Don't, don't forget why you're here. Don't forget that you live in between my resurrection and ascension and my return in the end of the age. Find yourself vividly living in between those two events. Wake up and lift your eyes to the horizon. Listen to my voice. Do you hear? I'm telling you in advance what's coming. Would you live in light of it? And finally, as an encouragement, remember that Jesus will return. That's what's on the horizon. That's what he wants to alert his disciples to. We join with the historic church in affirming what every Christian community has believed throughout history. Jesus will return in bodily form to usher in the end of the age. We will be resurrected, we will be transformed, and we will continue in relationship with him only face to face and for all time. Stand firm in the faith, live a life of integrity, and remember that Jesus will return. These truths are central to our text this morning. They are central to our faith in Jesus, and they're actually central to daily living.
As I live my life, I am confronted with evil, as are you. The evil in the world, both random and and systemic. The evil that we find within our own hearts. The biting hopelessness that constantly knocks at the door, wrapped in the daily news headlines, like a Trojan horse, hoping that we will swallow that pill and become frustratingly hopeless ourselves. I, too, sense the skepticism and boredom and and social pressure that push and pull at the edges of my faith. This is life, day in and day out. And the reality is that the imminent return of Jesus speaks into all of it. The the imminent return of Jesus was meant to inspire, not a weird series of books, but was meant to inspire you to to face cancer and, and divorce and opposition, and disappointment, and death. To face famines, and and wars, and rumors of wars. To to live for the kingdom, and and be alert, and sober-minded, day in, and day out. When I am personally confronted with the evil in, in the world, around me or within me, and, and the relentless uh, news headlines, uh, or those uh, in, in, a, in power that are abusing that power and taking advantage of others, or, or, or the child that's starving to death in their parents' arms. I literally have to choose between crippling pessimism and hope in the return of Jesus. This is me personally. I have to make that choice every time I am confronted with evil. And, and, and what I have to do, the only way that I know to personally confront that evil it is to start by looking it in the eye and, and telling it, you will not have the last word. You have a day and a time, but Jesus has the last word. And he's going to return. And when he does, he's going to wipe evil off the face of the map. And that's really good news for a world that is trembling in the dark and and has nothing to say in the face of evil. And I don't know about you, but if I lose that perspective, then I am inundated by that frustrated hopelessness that that just comes washing over and and all of a sudden I, I feel hopeless and I feel numb. When I lose Christ, I lose everything. And and, and so I cling to that hope that one day he will come like a thief in the night and everything will change. No more temptation, no more evil, no more demons, 
no more persecution, no more dead kids, no more poverty, no more addiction, no more hopelessness, no more sin, no more Satan, no more death. None of those things will have the last word. None of them. And and it's the first thing that I have to say to evil. And it becomes the very foundation for any action that follows. Jesus' imminent return is the very basis of my hope. And it's the only thing worth hoping in. And, and just as the Jews were anticipating his arrival and the freedom that it would bring, for countless centuries they waited, knowing that it could be any day, but not knowing when. And in the midst of their pain and, and their hardship and their oppression, every day they kept crying out, God, send the Messiah. God, send the Messiah. It could be t- today. It could be this morning. It could be this next baby who's being born. For centuries they waited. So now also the world is eagerly anticipating his return. And it could be tomorrow, but we just don't know how soon. And so we too find ourselves in the midst of a world that is suffering and struggling and crying out. And we too, just like the Israelites, we cannot give up hope in the midst of that. We have to know that it could be tomorrow and act like it could be tomorrow and and hope in the fact that it could be tomorrow. That that one day, your faith will be richly rewarded. I believe in Jesus' return. I, I hope in his return. I pray for his return. There are days when I beg for his return. Jesus, God, you're going to come. Why not today? Enough. Why don't you come now and end the age? There are days when I pray that way. And and of course, there are days when I don't pray that way because I'm not ready for him to return. And there are days when I don't pray that way because I know that if he did return, I would be at least a little embarrassed at the state of my life, the state of my faith, at at, at my response to his daily call or, or my lack of response. But even on those days, I can read a passage like this one and and, and it's like a smelling salt. It wakes me up. I remember. I, I remember that he's coming back and I remember how we were intended to live. Fully awake, fully alive, leaning forward with eager anticipation as to what God has for us, seeking him day in and day out, risking what we have, living with passion and integrity. This is how we were meant to live. And and this is what Jesus is after. Not counting earthquakes or wars or famines, 
not following the next YouTube prophet who really knows this time the exact day that the world is going to end. Sorry about last year, guys. It was a fluke. I really know this time. Not scanning endless blogs to figure out which U.S. president is the Antichrist. Because according to the internet, all of them are. That's not the point. That's not why Jesus spoke these words. That's not what he wanted. None of those are the response that Jesus intended. Instead, he wanted us to live with passion, with that heavenly perspective, and ultimately with hope. Stand firm in the faith, live a life of integrity until that day when we finally fall asleep or wake up to find that Jesus has returned at last. That's the goal. That's what we're after. Let's pray.